Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. Educational technology is a fast-growing industry that is expected to reach $404 billion in total expenditure by 2025. There are a staggering number of technologies that are labeled as educational. The App Store alone has over 80,000 educational apps. However, the educational value of these technologies is not always clear. In this episode, I'm joined by a successful entrepreneur who shares her insights and experiences going from academia to building an edtech startup. Dr. Lindy Ledahowski is the co-founder and CEO of SA Jack, a successful Canadian software startup that helps students improve their academic writing. Lindy was a tenure-track English professor specializing in contemporary Canadian literature when she developed the idea for her company. After years of teaching English to high school students and university students, she saw that often students had great ideas but made errors in their academic writing. With her belief that if you can master the art of writing well, then you can achieve all your dreams, she quit her job in academia and developed the technology to help her students. I'm thrilled to have her here to share her insights and experiences in the edtech industry. Thank you very much, Lindy, for joining me today. Ah, thanks very much for having me. To delve into your business and how you came to develop SA Jack, what was the moment that inspired you to have the idea to start SA Jack? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it, you know, there are a couple of moments. So one is is a moment in the classroom. So I was a, an English professor. My co-founder is a law professor. And one of the things that we were always chatting about outside the class is that we had really sort of smart and interesting students and they would say interesting things in class and they would display their sort of critical abilities orally in class. And then when it came time to have them write something like a formal submission, essentially an essay, both of us were, were continually sort of disappointed at the quality of the writing and not quality of writing as in spelling and grammar, but just that the sustained conventions of argumentation in academic writing uh, was, was something that they didn't necessarily know how to do. And so it wasn't that they lacked good thoughts or good ideas or, or interesting insights, but they lacked the ability or the training in how to structure those in the way that in the academy you expect to find. So that was kind of, you know, the moment number one was we were having these conversations about like, how do we help and support students? Um, how do we demystify what it is that academics are looking for? How do we make it clear that there are some sort of structural requirements and people are expecting an argument to flow in a, in a certain kind of way? How do we mm-hmm. help students with that? And then so while we were having that conversation, my, my co-founder uh, went to his friend's scaffolding factory. This is like, a, you know, a big construction factory and they're designing and developing 
scaffolding. And then he, you know, sort of came so out. So actual called, scaffolding. Yeah, for actual a house. scaffolding. Okay. Like we're not talking about teaching strategies. No, no, okay. this is not. This is like the full on, you know, for oil and right. gas companies, okay. like big commercial scaffolding. And he came back and he was like, oh my God, I know what we have to build. We have to build scaffolding for writing. That's what they need. This is, <laughs> and so then we were kind of like, okay, this is the aha moment. And then it was from those two sort of the conversations around how do we support students to, okay, it's scaffolding for writing. That's mm-hmm. going to be the kind of differentiator for them. Now, you know, then it was, okay, now how, how do you, how do you start building that from a technological perspective that, you know, adheres to all of the pedagogical uh, insights that, that you want built into a technology. Absolutely. But th- that was the two things. It was the, how do we support students who are smart and just mm-hmm. don't know the conventions? And then, okay, the way to do it is going to be through scaffolding. That's really great. It's, it's, I love that how, because of course, scaffolding is used as language in education. Absolutely. But the fact that he was yeah. even more inspired by seeing scaffolding in, in the yeah. physical world, that is very, yeah. uh, that's fantastic. So I gave a little intro on what Essay Jack is, but can you delve in to describe to the listener what Essay Jack does and how it works? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, in its simplest form, it's the missing link between, say, a Google search and a Google Doc. You know, mm-hmm. if, if, if you think of, in my story about students who are, who are smart and had good insights, if you think about that, that's kind of content. Mm-hmm. So what is the content that somebody brings to their piece of writing and, and using the shorthand of a Google search? It's easy for us to acquire content. You know, if I have a question about, about anything, uh, scientific, historical, literary, you know, scholarly in whatever field it may be, I can go to Google and I can find some content. And then when it comes time to submit it, you know, I'll have a nice Google Doc and I can spell check it and all the rest of it. But how do I get that content into a Google Doc in the format that professors and academics, teachers, educators uh, are looking for? And it's that missing middle piece that SAJAC seeks to fill, that void we seek to fill. So that's conceptually what it does. So now practically, okay, great, good idea. What, what, how does it actually do what, what it, you say it does? And so um, instead of staring at a blank page when you have something to write, which is sort of the tyranny that anybody, students or educators alike, have suffered through at some point, SAJAC provides smart scaffolding. So it's mm-hmm. sort of smart templating that breaks the piece of writing down into its smaller component parts. So uh, for instance, if you're writing an academic essay, it'll break things down into obviously the introduction, the body, and the conclusion. But then within the introduction, there's the topic, which is the beginning. And so there are sentence stems or sentence starters that help get you focused. There are tips, prompts, and videos. So you just kind of type into the text box, you know, this essay is about, you know, whatever polar bears. And then the second section is called background. And it'll, again, have sentence starters, focus question, tips, prompts, and videos, sort of suggesting what kind of background you need to provide your reader if you're going to write about polar bears. And then you get down to the thesis statement. And depending on what level you're writing at, there may be additional sections. So methodology, maybe an extended background or an account if it needs to be a little bit more scholarly. So built within Essay Jack, we have a number of what we call off-the-shelf templates. So Mm-hmm. a book report or an academic essay or a five paragraph essay, a TED talk, a persuasive speech. So all of these kind of very typical assignments, compare contrast essay, those sorts of things. And so you kind of go in, you click, you know, I'm writing a agree or disagree essay. It will spool up 
the specific template, the kind of scaffolding for that type of genre, and then it walks you through step by step. And then as you're filling out these text boxes, it's actually compiling the essay for you. So you can sort of see, you can export to a Google Doc and you'll see all of your content in, in essay form. And then, as I say, you can go off and do whatever kind of final writing you want. And then, of course, because not only is, is essay jack for students, um, we have always believed in educators as being sort of participants in this whole process. And so Essay Jack is entirely customizable by educators as well. So they might say, wow, these off the shelf templates are great, but you know, the tips and prompts I use in my class are ever so slightly different. And, and I wanna go in and, and modify that so that the vocabulary my students will encounter on the Essay Jack platform echoes the vocabulary I use in my class. And so if you have an educator account, you can go in and, and change everything to your heart's content or, or make your templates entirely new from scratch if you want. That's a really important point because uh, people might assume that this is removing the teacher, which at some level you can use it on its own, but it's also very much intended for it to be used in an education context like a school and a university for the teacher to use it as a tool to help the students, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And prior to being a professor, I myself as a high school teacher, my co-founder has mm -hmm. taught every grade from pre-kindergarten to PhD. So we certainly come at things with an educator perspective and don't want to write the educator out of the educational equation. And then, and that, you know, just given sort of our bias and our, and our belief in the power of education and the power of educators to make a difference in the lives of students. But then I also believe, so there are some things technology can do really well and there are some things that are best served by real life people. And so my philosophy is let the technology do what it does well, which frees up time and energy for the real live people to do the things um, that are more sophisticated. So if students are able to get a first draft done quickly on Essay Jack, and, and then they can have that conversation with their teacher or their TA or their professor about the ideas and how to push the envelope further to make them more sophisticated, how to be challenged, because that's technology is not very good at that. It's not really good at sort of picking up on nuance or sort of pushing the field further. But experts in the field can certainly do that. And so, you know, if SA Jack can demystify the writing process, then the educators can kind of step in and do that piece that, that only they can do. Exactly. That's wonderful. And it's so fantastic that both you and your co-founder have such a huge education background. I mean, not only you're a specialist in literature, so obviously you're coming to writing from a very academic perspective, but you've also taught it in all grade levels. And being an ed tech entrepreneur, now it's really just the whole bundle brought together, yeah. the whole package, which is absolutely fantastic. To explore that more and how you came to being an ed tech entrepreneur, as a professor and, and teaching in schools, did you try to find a software that would help your students in this way? You said you had these conversations. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so thanks very much. Because absolutely, I mean, when we were having these those early conversations about this sort of puzzling problem, which is, you know, that that students struggle with academic writing. And trying to figure out exactly, so why do they struggle with academic writing? And, you know, one of the answers is that academic writing, it is a bit 
esoteric in the sense that if you're an academic, you know what the conventions are. You know, you've written journal articles and scholarly papers or scientific papers or whatever your field is. But if you've not achieved that, then academic writing is different from a blog. It's different from an email. It's different from other, you know, it's different from a short story. It's different Mm -hmm. from poetry. It's different from other forms of writing that students might be familiar with. And um, scholars aren't necessarily trained composition educators. Right. You know, if I'm if I'm a religion prof or as my co-founder is a law professor, you're an expert in religion or law or whatever. You're not necessarily an expert in in writing, and so so there there's that kind of gap in there. So while we were sort of struggling with, well, how do we help students? I mean, 60% of all post-secondary students are writing in some form or another. Most programs, even engineering programs and science programs, they often have a requirement requirement that students have to take one course that sort of meets their writing requirements, Mm -hmm. composition requirements. That'll differ from university to university, but there's this general sense that like writing matters, you know, and all the studies show that if you can write well, you can make more money over your lifetime and all that. Mm -hmm. So we were very conscious of the fact that this wasn't a side skill that we wanted our students to master, it was something that was actually really quite core. And so again, we're sort of researching into what else is out there. And what we found is that there are a lot of tools that are really um, helpful at, as I say, at that final end. So mm-hmm. the proofreading, the tweaking, you know, there are online text editors of a variety of sort that can help refine what you've written. And then there are, are some tools at the front end. So tools that can help with brainstorming or note taking. There's training. So you can like watch videos to learn about that content piece that I was talking about. But there's not that much that blends the two together. So that in the moment of writing, you actually have writing support. You know, it, it, there, there are also a number of books out there. So books about the principles of good writing. Mm. But it's sort of like you have to ingest those principles of good writing. Then you have to apply it in your own context, which is like an additional step. Whereas with, with Essay Jack, you're writing your content. So whether it's religion or law or whatever, and, and Essay Jack is sort of walking you through those steps in the moment. Mm. So it's not like you have to learn it first and then you have to apply it. We've sort of collapsed those two activities together. And that's what we found in all of our searching uh, was missing. And so even as we then sort of built our, our minimum viable product, our sort of very early kind of tester to see, does anybody even want this technology that we're, we're inventing? that we haven't found, but maybe it's out there. And again and again and again, when we were in education IT departments, in writing centers, dealing with students, everybody universally said, like, I've never seen anything like this. You know, this is something that we need. This is, and so that, again, gave us that courage to keep going because we sort of thought, oh, okay, well, we're on to something. We couldn't find it. And it mm-hmm. seems like other people who are in the field also, you know, sort of can't find it. Right. Um, and so, that, so again, that let us know that the gap we were seeing was a legitimate gap. We hadn't just not lucked into stumbling upon something that absolutely was that solution. That's fantastic. I mean, that's very satisfying to realize that yeah. there is a gap and others see it as well. So that's really good. So jumping from being an academic and educator into the ed tech entrepreneurship world, really is like jumping into a completely different world. And unfortunately, ed tech and education science doesn't always communicate. So what was your initial experience in this transition? 
Yeah. And as I said, so we, once we decided, oh, okay, so it's going to be scaffolding for writing and this is what we're going to do. And, you know, as I say, we, we built that MVP or minimum viable product. And that was, you know, we, we hired a coder and he sort of, and we described what we wanted, um, you know, sliding pieces of paper around to be like, <laughs> and you would click here and this would happen. You'd click here and this would happen. And he said, you know, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll go. And, and he took about three, three weeks and, and built us, you know, and it was very, it was very basic, but it right. conceptually, you know, it had sentence starters, it had text boxes, you know, the sort of built-in logic that we had had wanted to experiment with was there. And we were able to then sort of take that. And at that point, like, we didn't know we were building a business. We were just sort of like educators trying to solve a problem. And so right. at that point we said, oh my gosh, it works. It's amazing. But I mean, we're not our target user. So mm -hmm. obviously it works for us. It came out of our heads, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so so we, we went to uh, the school close by to where we were living and we showed it to their English department and their administrators. And we're like, can we get some students and, and do some tests? And so they were, they were really enthusiastic and they hadn't seen anything like it. And they were really sort of great early uh, partners and adopters to help us sort of get in and test it out. And, and we tested with uh, their entire grade eight cohorts. So that was five classes mm -hmm. of grade eights, their IB grade 11 and IB grade 12 English classes uh, in a couple of different scenarios. So one was, it was a mandatory in-class essay and they had to use essay jack. And in one case, it was optional for an after-school practice for their, their IB exams that they could mm -hmm. use essay jack or not. And then we were able to sort of compare um, the quality of writing. So out of all of those three, the grade eight, grade 11, and grade 12, um, the students loved it. The, the teachers found that the writing had improved. And so that gave us a lot of confidence at about 200 students in total. So then we were like, okay, well, let's go test this um, at a university. And, and the university let us in five different undergraduate classes. So it was like business ethics, English, history, international writing, you know, so a number of different courses and it was made you know free and optional for students to use and again the students loved it the teachers loved it because their writing was better and it was at that point where we started to think okay we've invented a thing people like it do we want to fully build this out as an mm -hmm. actual sort of viable commercial product? And then it was at that point that we're like, okay, well, we now have this feedback from hundreds and hundreds of teachers and students, you know, from grade eight to university. And they were the ones, the instructors who were like, well, it has to be customizable. It just, it, you know, it just, that, that's a deal breaker if it's not right. customizable. Mm -hmm. um, so then we sort of went back and, and rebuilt the product. And at that time started to think about the fact that this product would have to be a business, but we were still incredibly naive. So to get to your point, like it's two different worlds. You can know education. We had spent our entire adult lives in education in one form or another. So we can know education really well and be content experts and specialists and really great classroom practitioners. And that's entirely different from knowing anything about sales funnels and you know, ROIs and leads mm -hmm. and all of those sorts of things, which are core parts of, of any, any business, let alone an ed tech business. So all that other side of things, uh, we really had to learn on the fly. Wow, that's, uh, that is huge. And what did you find most surprising? 
once you decided this was the space you were moving into as a business, what was surprising to you? Yeah. So what's really interesting about ed tech, so there are different categories of ed tech tools. So there's, you know, things that are sort of roughly administrative and they they help organizations mm-hmm. roster their students or manage grades or tuition or whatever the case may be. Um, and then there are things which are, are learning tools. So yes. things that ha- where the outcome is a learning outcome, not a, not a monetary outcome or an operational outcome. And SAJAC is squarely in that case. So it improves people's writing and it takes away writing stress mm-hmm. um, and it allows students to write more quickly, you know, and, and, and the teachers love it and they can focus on their content. And when it comes to evaluating things, they, they can spend less time marking bad essays, essentially. Mm-hmm. Now, all of that is fantastic and it ticks a number of learning outcome boxes, um, but those learning outcome boxes aren't always directly associated to budgetary line items. And so as much as you can then have your proof points, and we we did a number of different studies, I think there was like 12 different studies sort of validating all of those things that I just said in terms of reducing writing anxiety and improving grades and reducing time to completion. But unless you can attach either dollars being made or dollars being saved by those learning outcomes in a sales process, it is hard to then move the needle forward if you're talking about sort of big educational sort of sales, unless you know exactly which bucket of money. So if you're saying, okay, we want this money to come out of support for English language learners, you know, so there's a there's a line item for that, or maybe it's going to come out of assistive technology budgets. And so uh, learners who need additional technological supports because they learn differently, or it's just going to come out of the composition, you know, the English department or whatever. So unless you know all of these different ways in which schools and colleges and universities and divisions and departments and districts manage their budgets, you won't be able to speak that language, your sales process. And so as an educator, if you're like, oh my God, this is going to make everybody's life better. Teachers will love it and students will love it. And and the teachers do love it and the students do love it, but they don't pay for it in, in that kind of a sales context. And so, so that was interesting for us to learn how to navigate those conversations with those who manage budgets and those who feel the benefits of a tool like SAJAC and sort of being able to sort of figure out how to speak those very different languages. And, and part of it too is because we invented something new, like as I, as I said, you know, nobody had seen anything like it. You also can't just go in and say, oh, okay, well, you're using tool X. Our tool is better and cheaper than tool X, so switch from X to us. Mm-hmm. You're kind of going in and saying, so what you're doing now doesn't work you know it doesn't meet the needs of students and there's a bunch of sort of ineffective labor involved in trying to teach writing Mm -hmm. and it's painful and it's also leading to problems with plagiarism and essay mills and so we have a solution to these many big problems but you need to then whoever is your champion on the other side who you're having that conversation with they need to be courageous and a bit of a visionary which sometimes you have but sometimes you don't sometimes you have people that you know it's their job and they know the budget items and they know what decisions they can make and what they can't and if you're trying to sell them something that currently doesn't exist and they then have to figure out you know how they would slot it in and and how that works it's more complicated and so Mm -hmm. all of that bucket of 
what does it mean to sell an ed tech solution in a sort of B2B sales in larger adoptions? What does that look like? And how do you communicate? All of that was new. And all of it was also complex in the sense that, you know, as I say, we, we kind of bit off a very big chunk of the particular ed tech pie <laughs> in creating SA Jack because we weren't just taking something that exists and making it better or cheaper or yeah. cooler or whatever. We were, we were really saying, so the gap is there and nothing else is filling that gap except mm. for, you know, say writing centers or additional tutors. And you have sort of, again, various problems associated with that and that you can't always necessarily get that on demand. You know, if you need writing help at three in the morning, you know, can you get your tutor or an appointment at the writing center? No, but you SA Jack is software. So it's there 24 seven. You have those kind of efficiencies built in current solutions, which are very labor intensive do exist. Yeah, that's a huge thing because as an educator, you're so immersed in the educational need and the strategy and how to help students learn and help teachers teach better, which is completely separate from budget line items. And you're like, well, of course you should buy this because then there's this other side of where does it fit in? What are the administrative slots it needs to go into, which is something that is just completely foreign. And also, as you touched on a little bit, it's about measuring, you know, how much better is this than not having it, which in education is a constant challenge of how do you measure that it's going to have greater engagement, students are going to be gaining more knowledge. That's a very hard thing to measure and to convince someone to see it in in anything other than numbers. Yeah, I was going to say, one of the other interesting things in this is that so typically, the way that ed tech works or the way that, that any technologies, but, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're talking about ed tech, so I'll keep it focused. It works is that you're, you're wanting to track engagement metrics. Mm-hmm. So uh, how many times a day does the student use whatever your solution is, whether it's SA Jack for writing or it could be, you know, an app for solving math problems. It could be, you know, to learn a second language and, mm-hmm. and how often do students log on to practice, whatever those things are. It's, it's typically engagement metrics. But interestingly, if you come at things from an educator and you have educational supports, Mm -hmm. ideally, if your educational support is actually really good, you are weaning your student off it because they're mastering those skills. Mm -hmm. And so you, you don't actually want to have engagement metrics where students are then using it all day long every day, Mm -hmm. but actually that they use it intensely at the beginning and then they sort of wean themselves off because they've learned whatever the skill is, whether it's learn how to solve quadratic equations or learn how to write an essay. And so as an educator who created Essay Jack, that's very much how it works. So out of students who use and like Essay Jack, there are some who do use it and love it and will sort of use it for their entire uh, academic career because it gives them um, the confidence and the support that they need. Then there are some students who use it for the first few times, say five Mm -hmm. or six essays or assignments, writing assignments, then they kind of feel like, okay, you know, I've demystified the things that I didn't know as I say transition from high school into university or as I took my first college level Mm -hmm. course that has writing, but now I have the confidence I can can go off and, and do it my own. And then there are some who sort of will look at SA Jack, make sure, and it, they will check the lessons built into SA Jack, but they are already confident writers. So those mm-hmm. are kind of three user types. And so for us, we've always seen that as fantastic, yes. you know, because why create a sort of tool? Crutch. 
that is a crutch that's going to carry you all the way through or that's really dependent on certain kinds of gamification that's, you know, giving you bells and whistles and rewards and things like that to sort of drive you back to the platform again and again, when all we want to do is like, it's meat and potatoes. We want to give you the skill so that you can go off and lead your best life. But in terms of this whole ed tech and then the sales piece and your point about how do you quantify it? What is the, what is the numeric value that you're putting on not only only the learning outcome, but also the efficacy of the tool. So Mm -hmm. one way in which, say, as a business owner, I would report back to, say, a school who is using EssayJack is I would then report back like, oh, okay, so we had 82% of students used it, or this is what the daily use rate was, or all of those kind of metrics. And if you go back and say, okay, so in that intense writing period, midterm, you know, in October, we had X percentage, but then by November and December, that percentage was reduced. Mm-hmm. For us, that's a success. It means the students used it, learned a lot, and then felt confident as they went on. As an institution looking at, is this a technology we want to continually adopt? You're looking at, so how often do people use it as a key metric? And so all of that is to say there are kind of weird built-in incentive structures for technologies like ours to make you become more um, addicted and more dependent on it. And, mm. and, and I'll admit, you know, we've done that too, you know, in, in adding additional features and additional videos and additional, yeah. additional sort of tools and training items beyond what we ever sort of initially planned so that we can keep those user numbers up, keep them coming back, keep adding value. And so that's, again, as an educator, it's one of those things that I kind of grapple with because if I just wear my educator hat, then I want to say, yeah, it's great. I want students to come in, master what they can on SA Jack, and then, as I say, go on and and live their best life Mm. and be competent, (laughs) critical thinkers and writers. If I wear my EdTech CEO hat, then then I'm going to say, you know, we want to capture those users and keep them forever. And then once they graduate out of SA Jack, we're going to have professional Jack and they will use us, their crutch, when they get a job, you know. And so you have these two sort of competing parts uh, in, in yourself. Yeah, that's a very, I mean, that's a really, really ongoing and interesting dichotomy in education, isn't it? Because business side of it, you want to measure and educational institutions want to show numbers. And learning isn't always transferable in numbers. There's a lot of nuanced ways of showing progress and showing success. So often I've had these conversations where it really does almost need to be an educational discussion about how far do numbers take us and at what point do numbers actually start lying to us and inhibiting what's really going on because as you said, best if they don't use it forever, best if they can go off like using a calculator, you know, you don't, you want to learn your times table so you can do it quickly rather than use your calculator for everything. Do you have those discussions with heads of schools, heads of finance departments? Yeah, so it's, so what's fascinating is that teachers, professors, and students need no convincing. So they exactly. they immediately see the value that yeah. SA Jack offers them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it relieves the pain points that they are feeling from a learning objective perspective. Mm-hmm. And typically as well, many of the students who really like SA Jack, they're not the ones who love writing. They're the mm-hmm. ones who like writing is a necessary evil. They mm-hmm. have to take these courses and they they have to write and they'd rather not fail and they'd rather not sort of bang their head against the blank screen not knowing what they don't know and feeling a right. bit embarrassed because that's the other thing you don't know if 
you haven't mastered these skills because it's your fault or, or, or whatever. Exactly. It's like, you know, showing up to first year calculus and realizing that actually you don't have basic addition and subtraction. And so mm-hmm. where do you even begin to exactly. sort of figure out those, those gaps in order to master the content being taught in first year calculus? And so similarly in first year courses or second year courses where students encounter academic writing often for the first time at the post-secondary level, you know, they don't know what they don't know and it can be very unsettling. And so, so they love essay Jack. And then it's having conversations with administrators who certainly bring in their, their teachers or their pedagogical teams, depending on sort of how it's organized. Often there's, there's ed tech committees or groups that are tasked with evaluating different sort of ed tech solutions that come to the table at whatever the organization may mm-hmm. be. And so those administrators, again, will sort of be like, okay, you know, show SA Jack and see if you can get them on board. And of course, again, the, it's easy to get them on board. And then it's, so how do you put a price to it. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to make the claim that say essay Jack is absolutely required for 100% of the students, mm-hmm. then you're looking at uh, a different price point. Cause then you say, okay, well we can do a per student price because it's going to be a required technology for every single student. If you're going to say, okay, essay Jack is going to be an additional technology that's made available perhaps through the library or through the writing center on an as needed basis for students who need it. Then you're not dealing with a full, you know, adoption, you're dealing with like per user. And so the thing is the institution is almost incentivized to have fewer people use it. Um, Whereas you at the company, you're incentivized to have obviously more students use it. And so you have to then sort of figure out how best to place your technology in environment in which you think it's going to make the biggest difference. And one of the things that's also fascinating about sort of selling into educational institutions, which is very different from say other organizations, like if I say instead of ed tech, I got, you know, I invented these amazing shoes and I could then, you know, and I sold the shoes to one, one store and then I go to the next store and I want them to be distributors for my shoes. I can quickly say, so, you know, here's how much money they make. Here's the profit margin. Mm-hmm. Here's what you can do. Here's, and it's all transferable data. Right. Whereas in an educational institution, if I go to institution B and say, okay, they're using it at institution A, this is what they're finding. This is how much they love it, all the rest. And then institution B will say, yeah, but our students might be different, mm-hmm. you know? using it here uh, what's the data from our specific and so each conversation starts from ground zero and that's again uh, you know not, maybe not quite ground zero I mean I think if you know you've, you've got validation in other institutions that helps but again each institution wants to know if it's going to meet the needs for their students so that's not a full answer to your question but it sort of gives you a bit of the lay of the land of the kind of conversations you have about learning objectives as the goal and then with sort of how to sell where that goal is is about the learning objective as opposed to you know who pays for what where and how and so you said that the the conversation it's almost from the ground up at every at every institution what does that really look like how do you get the product into the classroom and to be adopted with all the unique features of of those different yeah so and, and it's changed a bit since covid so Typically, 
an education technology sort of sales process would involve, say, a free or low-priced pilot of some mm -hmm. sort. Um, and you have whatever the parameters are. It could be an entire institution pilot. It could be a couple classes or whatever. But essentially, you want some guarantee that they will, in fact, use it during the course of the pilot so that then both you and that institution mm -hmm. find out whether or not it suits their needs. And then from there, you get into negotiations about what a larger rollout is going to be. So that's typically how it goes. And right. so because you've got those pilots and that'll be typically, if, if not a full sort of term, at least half of a term in order mm -hmm. to get, you know, sort of usable data to have people writing and then typically a larger sales adoption um, that happens once a year is when organizations are determining their budgetary spend for the subsequent academic mm. year. So you're not sort of selling all year round necessarily. You're certainly selling to secure various kinds of pilots, but the big adoptions, all of that work kind of happens typically. And again, it's at different times of the year in different jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. So Australia is different than Canada, right. but again, it will happen sort of at one time of the year there and at one time of the year here. And so that's typically how it goes. What we found um, with COVID is that individual teachers are the ones, especially if they're now suddenly being asked to go into full online or some version of hybrid learning, and they've not necessarily done it before, and they're teaching writing, and writing is very, very hard to do online because you don't have that same kind of community of, of writers in your class yes. where you can model things and they mm -hmm. can work together and all the rest. It's, it's whereas SA Jack is perfectly suited to that kind of scenario. So what we've mm -hmm. found is a lot of teachers and professors have come to us for just a class only. So right. instead of like, let's figure out the entire adoption, they've just been like, look, I've got 25 students or I've got 55 students. How do I get it just for them? And so we've then kind of pivoted and made per class pricing available in those situations to make it easily so that that teacher can have control over their class. They can customize things. They can you know do whatever they want for their students and doesn't matter what's happening in the, in the school or the district as a whole. So that's proven to be um, quicker and more satisfying, to be honest. And I think in part, um, what teachers are finding is that they're the ones who then know their the ins and outs of their organization. So mm -hmm. if they can then say, look, during COVID, we used this tool and it was really helpful. I want to get it again next year. I'm going to recommend it to other teachers. That's proving to be um, sort of more successful than when it's just us, you know, Here, here's our new technology. Amazing. Uh, give it a try. Um, so that, so that's been a sort of an interesting thing that has come out of the way that education has changed right. throughout this pandemic. Wow. There's a lot. I mean, obviously the business side of it and how you measure success and how you go about sales is absolutely massive. What was your greatest learning experience? Well, so, so so everything that I've talked about thus yes. far was, was certainly Huge a lot. Yeah. Um, one of the things, and, I, and, I, and to be honest, I still struggle with this, is because I'm an educator at heart, and my aim and objective is to help and support as many students and teachers as possible. So my problem is when people come and they're like, I really want this for my class, but I, you know, I don't have access to budgets or whatever. Can we, can we have it? Or I'm like, yes, sure, you can have it. You can have it for your class. You can, you know. And the difficulty there is if you're giving too many things away for free, mm -hmm. you know, obviously you don't have adequate uh, revenue you know, to keep the lights on. And keep things going. And then more than that, 
now with education technology. So we grow at a steady rate every single month, but we haven't had that sort of venture capital, you know, hockey stick line graph mm-hmm. of growth that you can get if you have um, deep, deep pockets because you went out and got investment money and that investment money you can spend on sales and marketing. So we didn't right. go that route. And so as a result, now that we're at a position where we're like, actually, maybe we should go that route. Maybe we should start talking to investors and really accelerate our growth, you know, they look at us and they're like, yeah, but your revenue is not very high. I'm like, yeah, but that's because I get stuff away for free. And so, so to a certain extent, that's one of the biggest learnings is transitioning myself from being, you know, an educator at heart to being a business person at heart. It's quite a transition. You know, it's one thing from a business perspective to be able to manage, you know, the sales and the marketing and the finance and to develop those skills. It's another thing to see the world that way. So I still see the, or I tend to still see the world in terms of learning as the ultimate aim and objective. Mm -hmm. Whereas typically in business, you have to see profitability as the ultimate aim and objective. And I'm still making that psychological transition where instead of seeing like, oh my gosh, people can write better. And that that's the thing I celebrate to be able to be like, oh my gosh, we made, you know, so much more money this (laughs) month. And I still, I still find that an awkward, if I'm honest, that awkward transition. I mean, obviously I'm making it and, you know, you you certainly have to keep your eye on the bottom line for sure. But never to lose that education perspective, because as the disconnect between education and ed tech is often the fact that it loses perspective on what exactly, maybe sometimes from the very beginning, what exactly is educational. And of course, business side of it is extremely important, but finding that balance is... Yeah. And I think, I mean, to a certain extent, I think that's been one of our superpowers from the get-go in the sense that we've been able to sort of punch above our weight in terms of securing really great distribution partners, getting in front of the right teachers and students, getting our story out there. And partly that's because like really at the core, I'm an educator and the tool demonstrates that fundamental sort of pedagogical aim. Whereas a lot of ed tech tools out there maybe were created by tech people or they were created by business people or the tech and the business people like had some focus groups with some educators. But there is a different mindset, I believe, in a tool that at its very core was solving a gap, you know, a gap that real teachers, real professors found in their classroom. And so I do think that's, that's been, you know, as I say, our sort of superpower to date, so that even though I may have made some, you know, stumbles along the way in my journey to really become an ed tech CEO, and I've had to learn things, the tool itself is good enough because it really was, it really does fill that gap. And then you know, once people use it, they love it. It's just that making sure that enough, enough eyeballs uh, get to see it. Absolutely. And that's really, really fantastic. And you're, you're one of the rare examples of that being very, very strongly on both sides of that educator and also, and also academic in the field of literature and at tech. So being an insider outsider, I mean, you're an insider outsider so often in education and then the business side of it. So how are you experiencing that? Yeah, so so one of the really great things about being that insider-outsider is that in terms of especially the early days, but even even to this day, we're sort of five years in, um, conversations with teachers and students is that I am still one of them. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, the Ontario College of Teachers is the organization that certifies professional 
primary and secondary school teachers in the province of Ontario. And I first became a member of the Ontario College of Teachers in 2000 when I graduated with my education degree. Mm -hmm. And I've continually kept that membership valid. So mm -hmm. technically I can teach in any class in this province. And to a certain extent that has helped me to keep my finger on the pulse of what's happening within educational circles. And so to know what, what teachers are grappling with, to talk to teachers on that same level, even though it's been a while since I've been a full-time high right. school teacher. And then similarly, I mean, I just submitted an article for publication a couple of months ago, you know, a peer-reviewed article a couple of years ago, won an award for an edited collection that we produced with the University of Toronto Press. Mm -hmm. So as an academic scholar, I still feel very kind of plugged into that to that circle as well, which allows me to, to feel like an insider. And what that does, it means that the conversations I have with people within education circles are very honest and authentic. I understand where they're coming from and they have a degree of trust that I can hear them and Absolutely. know where they are coming from. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, my personality type is also such that I'm not trying to sell somebody a solution if it's not for them, you know? So, so very quickly, I can understand if S.A. Jack's not a right fit for that particular school or that mm -hmm. particular organization, you know, that's fine. I want them to find what is the best thing uh, for them because I really and truly genuinely see where they're coming from and understand that pain point. Now, the outsider part, though, is sometimes odd when you realize that that actually, you know, what, despite your sense of community with other educators, you are now a vendor. So mm -hmm. you are you are a vendor selling a product into an institution. And so there are other channels that you have to engage with. And that's, as I say, all of the various kind of budgets and committees and decision-making that happens around the procurement and purchasing mm -hmm. of educational technology solutions or, or any solutions within an educational framework. Um, and so even though you can have this great sense of community with the educators or you can be brought in to do writing workshops to classes and the students love you and they love SA Jack, then you have to go and have those other conversations around around sales where you have to you know put on a different hat so to speak um and so that's where that kind of insider outsider you, you you both are an educator and are not an educator simultaneously and so what's interesting is that say at a big ed tech company um, they can have frontline people who are educators and then they can have other sort of, you know, the sort of finance or the salespeople uh, who, who may close the deals or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas I'm all of that. You know, so, so, so the, these yeah. various functions um, are housed within, within me, this sort of one person who, as I say, has to wear, wear many hats. Or as, you know, Walt Whitman says, you know, I, I am large, I contain multitudes. So that's, <laughs> you know, that, that's my English PhD show. Yeah. But, you know, it's definitely that sense of, of multiplicity Absolutely. and being both an insider and outsider at the same time, which, you know, as I say, is, is fantastic in one way because I can have those authentic conversations. And then the product can improve exactly. as a result of those uh, authentic conversations, you know, but then at the same time, you know, I'm on the other side of the table when I'm uh, selling somebody. There's a huge advantage for you to be able to get all of those different perspectives and understand those different players in the industry much yeah, yeah. better and making the connection. It, and so a definitely an advantage, but we also, um, got distribution partners to do some of the selling for us. Because one of the early things that I was worried about was that because that was an advantage to be able to get that genuine information from educators to, I mean, basically any classroom I wanted to get into, I could get into. Uh, because even if I was just going to do a writing workshop, 
Right. You know, and they and they were didn't know anything about essay Jack. They knew enough to know that I'd be a valuable speaker in their class on the topic of writing. But then I started to think. So when with any good sort of experimentation, you want to control for all the variables. Mm -hmm. And so what if we were attributing early essay Jack success to essay Jack, when in fact, the early essay Jack success was due to Lindy and Lindy mm -hmm. was an, an insider and a good teacher or whatever. So we made that conscious decision as well to partner with distribution partners mm -hmm. to say, okay, well, if I'm removed from the equation, does this product still work? If right. I'm not the one who does um, the initial training or if it's somebody yeah. else, you know, and, and so that was actually one of those proof points from a business perspective that was really, really key for us right. um, because we early on realized like, while it's great that I can be that insider, the risk is, is that if I have good relationship equity and people like me, they'll say yes to the request I, mm -hmm. whether it's a request for feedback or, or request for me to show it to their students. Yeah. But that may actually have nothing to do with essay, Jack. And that was a, a risk that we identified mm -hmm. That's pretty early on. And it's, and it's hard, you know, when you are the person who, who is starting up this, this company, you are doing everything. But I think it is helpful to at least try to figure out if the, if the strength of the company is only because of you, um, then you'll probably have a hard time scaling. The product that you're building will never be able to, say, be sold or rolled into a bundle with something else um, yeah. if it's solely dependent upon you. So, so as you say, like it was, it was really valuable, but it was also uh, it flagged a potential risk for right. us that we had to address. That's interesting. That's a really good uh, good strategy to have at the very beginning. So that's that's fantastic. So what observations, being this insider outsider and having that perspectives, what observations have you made about the ed tech industry? Yes. So one of the things, and this continues to be, I guess, somewhat frustrating is, so as I, as I mentioned, there are the, there are the sort of buckets of tools that are administrative in nature. And often those are the ones that have a, a high price point. And mm -hmm. so typically I'm thinking of a learning management system. Yes. So there'll be a learning management system or a big sort of infrastructure piece of technology. Um, and those at the institutional level are usually priced quite high. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, in some ways as they should be because they're around data protection and, and protecting um, student information. So that's obviously important. But because they are sold to administrators typically the usability from the educator's perspective becomes secondary often mm -hmm. and so you have these big adoptions of technology throughout an institution and when teachers and professors they just want to use it to you know upload a quiz or give feedback on an essay or whatever that that interface is either glitchy or not intuitive, or particularly ugly, mm. um, and that's very frustrating. Whereas then on the flip side, you have all of these um, learning outcomes tools, so technologies like SAJAC, and because they're based on like engagement data, they're mm -hmm. often really well done. So they look pretty, they're fun to use, they're pretty intuitive. Um, and so you've got these two kind of tracks going on in, in education technology. The one which is, you know, high priced and decided by administrators because it, it deals with a, a really functional pain point. Right. But then on the other side, you have all of these sort of really great learning tools, but they might have really low price points. Right. Or often what happens in education 
education technology is that, you know, people will, will give it for free, hoping that they'll get people hooked on their technology and then, and then they can raise venture capital and, and continue to have it free forever or whatever, whatever that um, business model might be, depending on, on the particular tool or platform. And it's that sort of disconnect, which I think uh, now that I'm on this side of sort of the education technology and I've sort of behind the wizard's curtain and kind of seen the levers moving of everything, that's one of the things that I think I'd love to see that disconnect closed a bit. I'd love to see some of the really great tools and learning outcome tools being used and paid for more so than say some of the big sort of functional tools or or realistically if they're still going to have such um, big market share by some of the big sort of operational or functional learning management systems to have them pay some of the smaller sort of companies that have really innovative learning solutions to then be embedded into that learning management system. Like somehow the payment for all of these tools and platforms still seems quite uneven. And I'd, and I'd like to see that kind of settle itself. What do you think is the hurdle or the sticking point that is not connecting this? Where do you think that might lie? You know what? I think it goes back to what you were saying in terms of quantifying learning outcomes mm-hmm. numerically. Yeah. And so so there are a couple of things built into that insight. So one, it's very it's often very hard to quantify specific learning outcomes numerically unless you're doing standardized testing for particular skill sets and standardized testing mm-hmm. as well is rife with all kinds of, of problems, particularly Absolutely. at the level of equity. So then in terms of determining a genuine improvement in a learning outcome, you need to do intake testing at the beginning. So every mm-hmm. student, you know, you get a baseline and then and then exit mm-hmm. testing and you you see if students have improved on their way out and then you attribute that change plus or minus based on technology or the tool that they've used in the interim. And that's very labor intensive. And it's also very individual because uh, ultimately what you want to be able to demonstrate is overall numerically more students are benefited by this technology Mm -hmm. than not. So that's sort of one of the issues around um, quantifying learning outcome improvements. The second, and this gets actually to the larger mandate of what we're doing in education. So typically in other businesses, you can allow things to be edge cases. You can allow items at the margins to be ignored. In education, if you believe education is a public good, so either it's publicly funded or it's subsidized or your society as a whole values education, then ultimately from an equity perspective, you value education for all. And Mm -hmm. so if you have students at the margins for whatever the reason, you know, the reasons are kind of immaterial, but students who fall outside of the mean or the norm, I think as an educational institution, you still have an obligation to meet them where they are and to help them. I think particularly, again, so, you know, as a Canadian lit scholar, I also work on questions of equity and diversity and what does it mean to be Canadian and contemporary Canada. And so for me, this question of belonging and non-belonging and not uh, leaving voices to be silenced, but allowing for multiple voices. That's really core to sort of my research and, and yeah. my identity and my commitments philosophically. So from an educational perspective, what that means is that it's not okay to just leave the margins, leave small edge cases. 
but then that's hard to quantify because then if you have to spend additional resources, monetarily, time or whatever, to address a smaller proportion of students who need whatever the supports they are, if you then try to turn that into an ROI conversation, it's very hard because the return on that investment is actually a return in a human being's life and potential. And so how do you put a dollar amount on the fact that, you know, little Susie or little Johnny's life is going to be better Mm. because of the intervention? Mm -hmm. Um, Because if you turn them into a number, little Susie or little Johnny is just one. And so X amount of dollars were put into one, that becomes a very hard justification to have. And so so as I say, this broad uh, conversation about the way in which education operates and, and trying to talk about learning objectives in numerical value, as I say, in the first case, it's very tough to, to sometimes be able to have entrance baseline testing and then exit testing and, and appropriately attribute those outcomes. But then the bigger piece is that what do you do in trying to put a dollar amount on the value of somebody's education? I don't know how to do it. You know, I, I, I certainly couldn't. Well, that's the thing about education is that when people say we should move away from an industrial model of education, that starts with the business model that we have for it, because yeah. you cannot quantify everything in education. It might get really great numerical test outcomes that are really missing an important link where actually down the road, that student will not know what you think they know and will not be able to apply it or did not holistically come out as a more well-rounded, productive individual. So you have to kind of move away from only looking at the numbers. And in order to move away from this industrialized model of an education, that's where I often think that, you know, if you hire well-qualified, well-experienced educators, education specialists, often it's the qualitative data on what they evaluate it as and how they, what they understand about, about the product, that what they can do is so much more important than the numbers, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, and that gets to another point. So the difference, say, between qualitative and quantitative data, or just talking, you know, numbers versus collecting, say, stories, for instance, mm-hmm. um, is also that qualitative data is often uh, longitudinal in nature. So real, genuine improvements in somebody's life happen over a lifetime. So if they learn to say love learning at age 10 and have positive experiences with school, it may only be at age 30 where you're really seeing the benefit Mm -hmm. of that love of learning um, in that person's adult life. But in order to engage in that kind of long-term qualitative data analysis, Um, It's really hard to, again, boil it down to budgets, it's really hard to find sort of the um, research funding to be able Mm. to engage in those, those really sort of. But also someone who's a well-qualified teacher and someone who's a well-qualified education specialist knows from past studies and past data, which parts of your product actually will provide that. 
Absolutely. Which is Absolutely. important, I think, for businesses to also understand people who are paying for it. I mean, yeah, yeah to, to trust. I mean, to absolutely trust the expertise of the educators exactly. who are making these decisions. 100 percent. I find. Yeah. I mean, often and this is one of my sort of pet peeves. Often when people talk about educational leaders, they're mm-hmm. talking about administrators or school mm-hmm. principals or whatever. When in fact, like educators are leaders. They're, exactly. they're standing in front of classes. They're experts in their field. They're leading learners you know, they, they are by definition leaders. And so trust yes. them when they tell you that something works and something doesn't, or they need more of X or less of Y, you know, exactly. I think um, sometimes this ability for um, administrators or the organization as the whole, as a whole, or as you say, sort of industrial education to not take seriously the insights of the people who are there frontline day in, mm-hmm. day out, um, mm-hmm. just seems to me like just such a wasted resource. Yes, absolutely. So with this very holistic view that you have of being educator, researcher, ed tech entrepreneur, uh, what advice would you have to the ed tech industry in making more effective products? Yeah, so so absolutely 100% engage with educators and students. Mm-hmm. Ideally, if you can get really qualified educators um, on your team in key positions, do it. Mm. And again, if you can have people who have that insider-outsider perspective, I think it's invaluable. And some of the best uh, education technologies I've seen out there were, were started by former teachers or, or, or former academics. And some of the worst out there who that may in fact be, be popular are those that are like, oh, we did a focus group of 25 teachers, you know, and, and they think that that's the sum total of, of what it what's required mm. to make a really valuable tool. So, so yeah. that would definitely be advice is, you know, talk to the people who know the field that you're venturing into from an educational perspective. And to bring that connection of the ed tech and the educators, what advice would you give to the educators when they're selecting products? I mean, selecting the right technology is a huge problem when there's an immense sea of different things you can select from. So what advice would you give to educators? Yeah, and this is hard because I think there's um, definitely ed tech fatigue. There are Mm -hmm. so many tools out there coming at educators. So Mm -hmm. what I would say is find things that require you know, you can work hard on if you want, um, but they require little input from you as the educator and it can still work. Like Mm -hmm. I find that tools that can be ready to go with little or no training are fantastic. Mm -hmm. And then provided that they then allow, you know, for those keeners to take a deeper dive and really sort of own the technology. Whereas I'd be suspect of something that really is going to require you to learn a whole brand new way of doing something that's really time consuming, you know, unless you're 100% sure that you're going to be with it for for quite some time, because otherwise, you'll spend, you know, time you don't have mastering a tool that you'll use for one or two years. And and Mm -hmm. to me, I I find that that's maybe inefficient. And and absolutely. That's huge. That is. And thinking back to all that you have learned in the ed tech world and at being an entrepreneur, what advice would you give to anyone wanting to start up their own company? Um, so one of the things that I, uh, and I can be very clear about that I underestimated were, was the cost piece. So mm. secure your finances sooner. So for us, you know, because as I described earlier, we really thought, well, we're just building a product. And I hadn't really thought through the whole sort of business model until, until we already had a product out there in the world. Uh, so that meant we were kind of 
rushing to catch up on the finance, like getting a corporate business account and you know, all, credit card and all of those sorts of things. Whereas I think if you know at the outset, here's our business, here's our business model, here's what our finances are going to look like, and here's how we're going to secure financing for this business for however long, 12 months, 24 months, whatever that initial runway is. Whereas for us, we're like, well, we'll just like pay out of our savings and build this product and build this product. And then you're like, keep going and you're like oh and then there's this other expense this other mm-hmm. expense this other expense and I can't keep paying out of my it water falls down yeah yes. yeah so that's so that's certainly um, have a much clearer financial picture of what what things mm. will cost how long it will take and then times it by three uh, because <laughs> it'll always take longer and cost yes. a little bit more than you expect that's really that's very very good advice so what is next for SA Jack what's next for you yeah, you know what? Good question. We just uh, closed our first adoption in Japan with a university uh, in Japan and uh, obviously in an English language program, um, but that's exciting. And we're starting to see global expansion a lot more, particularly in uh, some of the Southeast and East Asian countries, which is kind of a whole new world for us and really exciting. So we've got some conferences and some presentations throughout the spring in that region. So, so South Korea and in other cities in Japan. Um, uh, and so that's probably what's next is to sort of continue to to conquer classrooms and universities and schools one one step at a time, that's you know, wonderful. while we while we make the world a, a better, smarter place. Absolutely. That is really good. And I love the fact because it really is a mission driven company because you started yeah. by wanting to solve a real problem and the company grew out of that. So that's really exciting that you're taking it into yeah. new markets, which is great. So yeah. final word, you've already given so much wonderful advice and insights. Is there anything that you would like to recommend to read or watch on this topic that inspires you? Yes. So at the risk of being a bit edgy, um, there's this really great book, which um, which I quite like. It's by Mark Manson, and it's The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F. <laughs> okay. uh, and and it's, it's really good in the sense that, I mean, ultimately, when you embark on, on any path that is an alternative path than the one you were on. In my case, I was a tenure track professor and I left ultimate job security for life for ultimate uncertainty uh, in, a, in a startup. And so there are often there are going to be naysayers. And so you have to sort of learn how to quiet, you know, the naysayers in your own heart, but also the naysayers uh, out there. And so the subtle art of not giving and F-U-C-K sure does come in handy. <laughs> That's really great. Really great. I actually look forward to reading that book because it's such a good good way, yeah. as you said, to clear your own head and, and move forward. Yeah. Well, Lindy, thank you very much. You've given such a wonderful insight to your amazing business. And I love how you're coming to EdTech in a very holistic, from all different sides, with a deep, deep understanding and knowledge. And thank you very much for sharing that with us. Thank you. Oh, you are very welcome. And so if you if you want to learn more, I know you've got show notes and everything, but it's sajack.com and uh, we will make the world, you know, smarter one essay at a time. (laughs) (laughs) It's such an important thing. I mean, it's one thing that causes so many people anxiety and really is really important to write well, even when we are having this very audio visual kind of world. But it's almost more important than ever to write well. So it's a fantastic resource. And I hope people do check it out. And especially if they're teachers that they that they look at it and how it can help their classroom. So thank you so, so much. Oh, you are very welcome. My pleasure. Bye.